Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and I'm honored to ring in the new year with this very special interview episode. I know betting and beer are the primary focus of this show, but edges and insights in other walks of life can be even more valuable, and as we know, it's all about racking up those edges. To that end, I had the special opportunity recently to connect with an incredible person, and it's such a joy to share his wisdom on this podcast. And that person is Fred Clare. Fred's best known as the World Series winning general manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He held the role of Dodgers GM for more than a decade, spanning the late 80s to the late 90s. And until this past fall, for more than 30 years, Fred held the title of GM of the last Dodgers team to win it all. Fred's also lived a storied life beyond baseball. Notably, he's also a cancer survivor, and his miraculous journeys chronicled in the new book, Extra Innings, Fred Clare's Journey to City of Hope and Finding a World Championship Team. And beyond reaching the pinnacle in baseball and beating cancer, Fred's also admired as a teacher, friend, and mentor by countless people across all walks of life. I could go on with the superlatives forever, but I think it's better to get to the interview so you can get a sense of his legendary character for yourself. So without further ado, I'm humbled to bring you my conversation with Fred Clare. Fred Clare, thank you so much for taking the time to connect today. To say I'm honored to be having this conversation would be a gross understatement. It's so awesome to see you. So excited to hear from you. How are you doing these days? I'm doing well, Matt. Thank you for asking. I feel very blessed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the goals here will be to do our best to properly capture a life so rich, so enriching for others. And that's a daunting, if not impossible, task when speaking with you, but I think it would be a disservice not to give it our best effort. So thinking about starting from the beginning, um, maybe going loosely in chronological order, but there could be some twists and turns um, along the way. I think it'd be great if you could describe your upbringing, where you grew up, the family dynamic, and how that kind of laid the foundation for um, who you've grown into and and who you are today. Well, I uh, grew up in a very small town in Ohio, uh, southwestern Ohio, Jamestown, Ohio, And um, from the very beginning of my life, um, I fell in love with sports um, in playing the games and primarily basketball and baseball. Uh, Jamestown was a very small town, very small school. Uh, I think there were only um, 32, 33 students in our class, so we weren't big enough to have football. Um, But it was... um, being in Ohio, uh, it was a basketball town uh, in terms of sports. And um, so that was my um, beginning and early memories. And um, more important than that, uh, being uh, so blessed to have um, wonderful parents. Uh, my father owned the, uh, the corner drugstore in Jamestown. Um, my mother had uh, been born and raised in Jamestown. Her graduating class numbered 11. So you can see, um, although it expanded from 11 to 33, it wasn't really a fast growing community. But um, uh, blessed with, um, uh, with uh, wonderful parents and um, a wonderful um, brother and sister, sadly um, no longer uh, with me, with us. Um, so uh, my family um, moved to California in uh, 1950, and a rather major move for a a family from a little town in Ohio. 
but my um, love for sports continued. Uh, my interest in uh, journalism began because I wanted to try to figure out a way of how I stay connected with sports. And I thought it would be, as a coach, I certainly realized early on that my talent wasn't going to uh, carry me that far. So um, I continued my um, education first at the um, junior college level that I'm very grateful for, um, first at El Camino and then Mount San Antonio, and then graduating from um, San Jose State in um, 1957 and starting what would be really my full-time professional career uh, when I took a job with the Whittier Daily News. Yeah, and I love a story about the way that came together, because as I understand it, um, you got your journalism degree from San Jose State, graduating on a Sunday, essentially getting your first job with the Whittier Daily News the next day. Is that correct? There's no taking it easy, getting right to work? Well, uh, there's, there's only one day missing there. As I recall, the graduation was on a Saturday. I had appointments arranged with newspapers in Southern California, where my parents live. And so on uh, Monday, uh, my first stop was at the uh, Pomona paper, um, where the um, managing editor said that uh, they might have an opening on city side, but it would probably be two weeks. And I told the managing editor, wonderful man by the name of Ted Johnson, that if he'd keep my name, I would appreciate it, but I really couldn't wait two weeks. I then drove to Fullerton, where the secretary told me the managing editor had me on his schedule, but he had had a two-hour meeting come up, and uh, so it would be two hours. And I said, ma'am, I really can't wait two hours. And so I drove to Whittier, and Mel Rich, the managing editor, uh, hired me that day, and I began the next morning. Wow. Yeah. And what do you attribute to the urgency of, of landing a job so quickly? I know now it's common uh, to take, you know, whether it's a gap year or just a bit of time off to relax and unwind a little bit. Um, you just got right to it. And how has that mindset really continued to shape your life since that moment? Well, you know, Matt, I, I tell that story not to say, of, look how aggressive I was, or I got a job in two days. That's not really the point that I want to make with that story. But the point that I do want to make uh, and continually make uh, in being involved with students and young people, we, we don't have a day or days to waste. And um, I was blessed to have a friendship with uh, Coach Wooden. And when he said so many great things. Um, but one of the things that stays with me Coach Wooden said was, make each day your masterpiece. And so I think we need to make the best of each day. And I really don't know when I look back and I tell that story, I wonder, uh, that was kind of strange. Was, was I really that uh, aggressive in finding a job? But I was. I, I needed a job. I needed to support myself. And um and so I, I was going to, um, to make it happen. It didn't seem out of the ordinary. It just seemed like a um, reflection of my mindset. Wow, yeah, that's a really good way to put it. And 
looking ahead to what came next um is as i understand you worked there for a year then had a six-month stint in the army reserve and after that the whittier daily news managing editor offered to bring you back with a better job than you had before and that would be the role of sports editor and you ended up turning that down because the current sports editor was a friend named willie mears he had a wife and a child and this story has a really special place in my heart um, because for all the listeners out there, Willie uh, is was my grandfather, and he's my inspiration for pursuing journalism, where I was fortunate to get a degree from the University of Southern California. And the two of you actually met in 1957, uh, 63 years ago. For context, the Dodgers were still in Brooklyn at the time. And if you hadn't made that decision, I know we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, his wife, uh, at the time, my grandma is still alive and well. His child was my uncle David, and you probably didn't have a way to know at the time. There was another child on the way. That's my mom, Stephanie. So um, myself, my family, I think we're forever grateful for the thoughtfulness and kindness that you put into that delicate situation. Um, I think that shows so much strength and integrity on your part. And I'm wondering what factored into that choice for you? And um, how do you think your approach to that decision um, has perhaps continued to shape the way you make decisions and the way your life has unfolded since then? Well, it's so remarkable, Matt, and speaks so much to um, everything we do in life and every decision we make and the impact that it can have on other lives. Uh, sometimes not having any idea what that impact might be. But in this case, I had written the, as you noted, I was in the Army Reserves. The Whittier paper has a major fire and literally burns to the ground or nearly to the ground. And I wrote to Mel Rich. And again, as you recounted, uh, Mel Rich, the managing editor, he said, Fred, uh, I said, well, I have a job when I get back. He said, Fred, you'll not only have a job, but uh, we're going to name you the sports editor. But what will he was the sports editor. And it's not as if Willie wanted to make a career out of being a sports editor, because as you know, in your family, Willie was an entertainer. I mean, his goal in life, mm -hmm. as I knew Willie, was to be on stage. But this was a job that he had to support his wife and support his family. And here I was a young guy with no obligations other than to myself, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to support anyone else, and it just didn't seem feel like the right thing to do. And I think in life, and having now lived for eighty five years, most of us on this earth, I think, know right from wrong. Hopefully, we do. And how much better we would all be when we make decisions, careers or otherwise, to do the right thing. And as it turns out, that was very much the right thing. And um, as I recall, I came back to um, Whittier and then uh, the opening in Pomona where I first applied opened up and I became the, uh, went to work for the Pomona paper, later became the sports editor of the uh, Pomona newspaper. Uh, which really led me into um, an opportunity to then um, go to work for the Long Beach paper, which led me into covering baseball, which led me into a career in baseball. 
Yeah, that's remarkable. And we'll dig into plenty of this. I do want to skip ahead quite a few years to note the highlight of my college experience at USC was in the spring of 2009. I was taking a sports business and media class taught by Jeff Bellinger. Um, I believe you taught that same class from 1999 to 2001. And you came to speak to my class. And afterward, I was able to give you a handwritten note from my grandpa, Willie, and you two were able to get back in touch over the final year of his life. And that to me just reemphasizes the decision not to essentially take his job back in the 1950s, you know, more than five decades later, that had a generational impact on my family. Uh, it was able to ultimately get you back in touch with Willie um, through the end of his life. And I'm, I'm asking this not necessarily from a self-serving way to get you to talk about my grandpa and a family tie, but more to speak to the power of having character and you know, nurturing long-term enduring relationships. But what was it like to know somebody like Willie and other friends you've had over the course of, I mean, we're talking six decades. That's just remarkable. Well, I think it's, um, it's so, so important um, in terms of um, friendships and relationships. And I guess part of that was my um, own um, upbringing. Um, my mother, born in the small town in Jamestown, um, when she was in her uh, 80s, um, she would write letters and get letters from people that she knew from this little town uh, in Ohio. And now here I am in my mid-80s, 85, and um, I still correspond via email and an occasional call with a fellow by the name of Rick Foley, who was probably um, one of our best athletes in our little school, actually went on to play professionally in the Cincinnati Reds organization. I think that uh, our friendships, our relationships speak as much about who we are as who we are. And um, uh, I, I think it's, you don't see that said or written much, but I think it's very defining. We, we tend to um, uh, find people that we enjoy being with. And, um, and I think that those relationships are so important in life. And, uh, you know, sometimes in higher profile cases, uh, it uh, is uh, very much on display. Carl Erskine, the great Dodger pitcher, celebrated his 94th birthday last week. Wow. Carl's the last, he's a friend, a dear friend. He is the last of the boys of summer. Carl still speaks, and because it was more of a public forum, he was there with Jackie, with Pee Wee, with Nuke, with Duke Snyder. He was a key part of the boys of summer. Uh, and he treasures the uh, center part of his life in addition to his family. And when I think about um, friendships that I've been so fortunate to have, uh, I treasure them. 
and you um, you you can't just dismiss them. You can't uh, forget them because they're so valuable. Yeah, very well put. And I know that beyond relationships from Jamestown and with my grandpa Willie at the Whittier Daily News, uh, there there's so much um, beyond that. I'm looking to transition into your career between the Whittier Daily News and the Dodgers. I, I know the Long Beach Press-Telegram kind of bridged that gap into the Dodgers organization. Um, what was it like going from covering the team to working for the team? And how would you describe that stage of your career? Well, it, uh, it was an important, it was a change uh, because having um, been a journalism major, been in the newspaper business with Whittier, with Pomona, and with Long Beach, that now I was going to make this transition. A number of people have done it. Many, many people have done it. From the creative part of writing, of covering the team, because I love that creativity as a sports editor, whether it was uh, uh, producing the sports pages, uh, working with the printers to do that, whether it was writing a column, whether it was covering a game. And um, uh, so that was a, uh, that was a uh, transition when I had the opportunity to join the Dodgers in 1969. And then I did go from covering the team and covering the team had a really good inside look at what the Dodgers were about as an organization. And I was so impressed with uh, the O'Malley family, uh, with the leadership of uh, Al Campanis and Red Patterson and Bill Schweppe, kind of legendary figures in Dodger baseball history. So uh, the that transition uh, in many ways uh, was a rather, uh, easy step for me because I felt that I could use as my training in writing and my whatever creativity that I could bring to it to help in the um, promotion of the Dodgers and to service the uh, publicity director, my first position, to service the writers because I understood the position. And the organization was so small that uh, that it gave me a, a true inside look, not only in the front office, but in friendships with uh, Walter Austin and all of his coaches and all of our great scouts and all of our great player development people, uh, managers, coaches at the minor league level. So now here I found myself in the dream of my youth. How do I stay connected with baseball? I'm really connected. I'm squarely in the center of it in my own in my own little way. Yeah, and that became a pretty big way. And we can get into the tenure as GM, but before that, you were with the Dodgers for a while in a different role. And um, I I would love to have you describe that role a little bit. And also, one of the cool things I learned when reading extra innings you are the person who coined the phrase Dodger blue. And that's so iconic now. How did that come together? And how does that play into everything you did with the Dodgers before becoming the general manager? Well, um, my, uh, 
chain of advancement, if you would, with the Dodgers is that I started as publicity director. I had the chance to become vice president of public relations and promotions when Red Patterson left to become the president of the Angels. Then I had the opportunity to become executive vice president overseeing all business operations. And then in 1907, the opportunity to become executive vice president and general manager. The Dodger Blue came about because in publicity, in promotions, I mean, that's our job. How do we market this team? What do we do to um, make the best presentation that we can with the team uh, to uh, excite and serve the fans? And uh, it's always good when you're looking for something uh, look in other areas, other businesses or similar businesses and say, what's happening here that we can, that I can learn from, that we can learn from. And I had never been from Ohio. I was a Ohio State football fan as a kid, but I certainly wasn't a Michigan fan necessarily. But as I read more about Michigan, the thought of Big Blue, is it really struck me of a major college and, and there are others, but this is what struck me, of being identified with a color. And what really it, it excited me is what if we could bring that collegiate spirit to the Dodgers, a professional team? That's what we're trying to create. And so I came up with the, thought, the concept or the words um, Dodger Blue. And I knew we had it made after uh, we had the right guy to um, help paint the town once we created the theme. And that was Tommy, the sort of. Uh, but I knew we had it made when uh, Union Oil produced a bumper sticker after two years of implementing and then growing Dodger Blue. Union Oil came out with a bumper sticker showed no baseball, it didn't say Dodgers, it said, think blue, and everybody in Los Angeles knew what that meant. So if you think that's not satisfying, to be a part, and the emphasis is to be a part, because none of this happens on an individual basis, and all of it happens on a team basis. Yeah, I love that comparison you drew to Michigan football, even growing up in Ohio, because I myself grew up in Southern California. I'm an Angels fan, and I knew exactly where you were going with the Think Blue. So I love that point about not just being in, you know, in your own lane with laser vision. There's a lot to be said for being focused and all that, but also being aware of what else is going on and, and picking things here or there that you can maybe incorporate into what you're doing. So Clearly, you did that very successfully with the Dodgers for a while. And then ultimately, there was a fateful moment in the spring of 1987. Uh, at the time, Dodgers general manager Al Campanis made some insensitive remarks on Nightline and um, was fired as a result. And the choice of you as his successor seemed to catch a lot of people off guard at the time. You were admired for your character and your work ethic, but 
There was also the angle of a marketing exec and a former sports writer with no experience making trades or constructing a roster. So at the time, um, while a lot of people were surprised, were you surprised by how it all unfolded? Uh, I wasn't really surprised uh, because um, in 1987, when Al Campanis went on Nightline and uh, made some rather, really, truly unfortunate remarks uh, about uh, minorities having opportunities in baseball uh, related to um, the anniversary of Jackie Robinson. I think it was the 40th anniversary in 1987, indeed it was. Um, but uh, I, are, again, our front office was very small. And so I had attended, uh, Al became a very good friend. He was always kind to me. Uh, in spring training, I would be in all of his um, uh, meetings with the, uh, the coaches, the manager and the coaches. And so um, when Al was asked to resign, um, Peter O'Malley was actually in Houston, the place where uh, the Dodgers had started the season, the city where they had started their season and where Al had appeared actually on the floor of the Astrodome after opening game of the 87 season went on nightline. That um, before the third and final game in Houston to um, end the, uh, the first homestand, uh, Peter called me and I'll never forget his words or his voice or how he sounded. He said, Fred, uh, you have to take this job. Uh, we were, as an organization, we were in trouble. Uh, we were in trouble really in many ways as the Dodgers have never been in trouble. We had a firestorm. The team of Jackie Robinson Sadly, unfortunately, the general manager, executive, or the vice president manager of the Dodgers had made insensitive comments that couldn't be tolerated. And so um, uh, Peter called me and said, Fred, you need to take this job. I met with him the next day. And I said, Peter, uh, I'm happy to serve in uh, any way that I can to help the Dodgers. But I said one thing that's very important to me is that I want to be assured that I have full, total, complete responsibility. Because it's a very visible job. Most people don't last that long. And um, if I was going to be run out of town, I wanted to be sure that it was for the reasons that I made because I knew that I was surrounded by good people. And I knew enough about our people in the game that I could do this job. And so I took this job with all of the uh, will and might and power and passion that I could bring together. The best part of that, and I'll get back to an earlier point, the press went to Peter and said, uh, Peter, how long does Fred have this job? Peter gave the best possible answer. He said, he has it for today. And you know, Matt, that's all any of us really have. And that's the way that I approached it, going back to what drove me to uh, make three stops before getting a job on my second day after college. I had it for today. And I knew one thing. I was going to do it as well as I can and work as hard as I could 
and uh, whatever that time period was going to be, they were going to get my best. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really powerful point. And it transitions into something I wanted to ask, um, a recurring theme on props and hops, even when we're talking, you know, totally different topic in a sense, NFL betting, navigating uncertainty, especially in a year like this, there's so much uncertainty. Betting on any outcome in normal circumstances has plenty of inherent uncertainty. And there seemed to be major uncertainty within the organization after a losing season in 1987. And I know that, owner Peter O'Malley was exploring a more experienced general manager moving forward, but you wanted to continue in the role. And at the same time, that decision was in somebody else's hands. So how did you handle that period of uncertainty? Well, I knew I had found a role that I truly, it seemed like this was career-wise, this is why I was here. I had this meaningful position and uh, and uh, as time would show uh, some decisions in 1987 proved to be very good decisions uh, so I did um, uh, I did quickly um, uh, make moves and uh, had good relationships with uh, the other general managers almost all of them in fact all of them that I that I knew. But I think in uh, a period of uncertainty as we are today or in any business, there are a couple of very key factors. One of them is you have to gather all of the available information that you can collect. And you have to identify and be able to identify, because there's a lot of information in every field, to say the least. You have to be able to identify what is the most important information, whether it's by individuals or reports or whatever. And then the other thing, and this became true when I took the job with the Dodgers in uncertainty, you have, as a leader, you have to take responsibility because no one can know where we're going as an organization unless someone is there saying this is where we're going these are our guiding principles this is how we're going to get there and i am the responsible party and if it doesn't work you need to come to me because that's my charge. And I think that applies to everything we do, uh, everything in life, that, uh, uh, and, and even when the press came to me, I said tritely, the buck stops here. I didn't say that to say, look how much power I have. I had that because the fans, the players, the other teams needed to know who is now responsible for Dodger baseball? I'm your guy. And if it doesn't go well after a year and I'm gone, so be it. I accept that. I can accept that. That's why I wanted responsibility, accepted responsibility, and had the confidence to know that I was surrounded by some of the great people in the game. 
And that gave me great confidence because I knew who I could count on. Yeah, I love that notion of taking responsibility, especially in uncertain circumstances. It's maybe easier to do so when the variables are easier to identify or when everything's going well, um, but it's especially powerful in, in those types of moments. And that reminds me of another recurring theme of the Props and Hops podcast. Everything is a bet. It goes far beyond sports betting. Um, in everyday life, maybe continuing to do the same thing sounds safe, but that in itself is betting against the alternatives or making a change might not only mean ruling out the status quo, but also any other possible changes. So we're always dealing with some form of a bet with varying degrees of stakes. And Peter O'Malley ended up making a big bet to keep you and Tommy Lasorda with the Dodgers after a disappointing season in 87. Uh, he detailed his thought process very eloquently in extra innings. And I would love to hear what it was like for you to win the World Series the very next season and see his big bet on you so handsomely rewarded. Well, I can remember uh, vividly that uh, uh, a terrible season in 87, we finished 16 games under 500. Many changes going into 88. And I can remember as we got into postseason play um, with the Mets that had really killed us during the regular season, and then with the powerful Oakland team, a thought that drove me was, we're going to win this thing. And when we do, I'm going to have an opportunity to thank the people responsible. I'm going to have the opportunity to thank our players, to thank our scouting system, thank our minor league system, thank, of course, Tommy and our coaches and our major league players. And we're going to be back on top of the baseball world after been, having gone through such a devastating and difficult period. And that's really what, um, what drove me um, was knowing. Uh, and I think that, and I've seen the tape uh, with the, uh, there with Bob Costas in the post game uh, uh, after we won the World Series. And the words I had thought about, and it's always good to think about your words, were the words that I used in, when Bob asked me my reaction. It was a credit to so many people who had contributed so much. Yeah. Um, it, it was you know, a lot of people doing a lot of heavy lifting to make this happen. Um, and I'd like to dig in a little bit more to that 88 season, shocking the baseball world to make that happen. Such a quick turnaround, most noteworthy move signing Kurt Gibson. He ended up being the national league MVP in 1988, hit one of the most famous home runs in baseball history. Um, he was a big piece, but certainly not the only piece. What was your approach to signing him and building out the rest of that roster? And what do you think the biggest factors were in succeeding so quickly? I think that uh, we, uh, we had a, an important foundation, even though we had been really terrible 
in not only 2017, 2016, those were two seasons of being 16 games under 500. I don't think that anybody was picking us to do anything in 1988. But the one thing that I really tried to do was to bring uh, people that I was well aware of, people of character, people who played the game with just a all-out total effort. The first player I signed on day one or day two as general manager was Mickey Hatcher. I knew knowing Mickey from a previous stint with the Dodgers. Uh, I knew about Kirk through the scouting reports uh, that we had both professionally through Mel Didier and, his, and Kirk's amateur career through Dale McReynolds. had a very clear picture, even though he'd gone on now as established Major League star. Um, John Shelby, one of the first players I traded for, I, I knew the character of this player. And these were guys who were truly uh, character people I think they got underrated by some. They said, John Shelby spent half his time in the minor leagues. But when I sent a scout to see him uh, that uh, spring of 1987, he's in Rochester, New York, and it's freezing cold, and he's the first guy on the field in practice and the last to leave. I knew this was my kind of player. So I say that the most underrated part of the scouting report this character. Tell me about this guy. We, we know he's good enough, whether he's playing in the NFL or the NBA. He wouldn't be there if he wasn't the talent. You can't get there without talent. Okay, you got the talent. Now tell me about the person. That's what I want to hear. I can see the talent. Tell me about the person. Character counts. Yeah, so... 88 just was a magical ride. It was it was so surprising to so many, um, but it was such a big moment, obviously, for the Dodgers organization. And I think we'd also be remiss not to touch on the, um, you know, some of the highs being accompanied by some lows over the course of your decade plus with the Dodgers. There was the infamous trade in 1994, giving up Pedro Martinez for Delano de Shields. And I see you starting to grin a little bit. Um, we all know... Pedro went on to become a Hall of Famer on the short list of greatest pitchers ever. DeShields had three uneven years with the Dodgers. But not to harp on the result, um, more digging into the fact that at times we all make decisions that don't lead to the desired outcomes. And certain things might look so obvious in hindsight. That's life. So I'm more interested in the process behind that decision at the time, as you recall it, and how you're able to process, um, you know, looking back on that result and, and just living with how it netted out good good uh, good questions and uh and good topic because uh pedro uh is a wonderful man uh when you talk about character uh pedro uh, uh just like his brother uh ramon and a third brother jesus with character people as well as uh, professional players and when i look back on pedro um, I tried, uh, we had a need for a second baseman. And I tried every way possible uh, 
to fill that need and um, pleading a offer to our uh, current, uh, our second Mason year for Jody Reed, which is really an off the charts offer uh, that he didn't, uh, unfortunately for everyone involved, didn't accept. But uh, when I look back and think about that, uh, is that um, I really, uh, I didn't underestimate uh, Pedro, which was a, uh, it maybe sounds saying strange in saying that, but in striving to do one thing to fill this need, I paid way, way, way too big of a price. And so, um, as uh, you know, and there are a lot of people, it's interesting, a lot of people who kind of um, want to um, uh, not take me off the hook, but, but kind of give a reason why Fred did this. And Dr. Job, the late great Dr. Job, a dear friend, had talked in, a, in meetings about Pedro, a rather small person, uh, about uh, injury risk in so many words. So I can remember Frank calling me when Pedro's career was taking off. He said, Fred, you, you never mentioned to the press about reports that I gave. I said, Frank, you didn't make that trade. I said, and again, uh, Matt, this comes with accepting responsibility. I said, your job is to give the best reports you can from a physical standpoint. And you're the best in my view, you're the best in the world at what you do as an orthopedic in baseball. So it had nothing to do with you. What you said, you didn't say, you didn't make the trade. So I think the, I think the summary of it, Matt, the most important part it still gets back whether it's success or whether it's failure to take the responsibility to learn from every move you make, good and bad. And bad teaches us far more than good in most cases in our life. And to um, don't make excuses and to move on in life um, and uh, let go. And I, when I congratulated Pedro when he entered the Hall of Fame, I should have saved the text. I didn't. But Pedro and I always had a good relationship, and he texted back and said, Fred, it was an honor to play for your teams with the Dodgers. So, um, uh, again, uh, Matt, you, uh, you, you, uh, you have to learn. You have to learn, uh, and, and it is a, uh, I don't fault uh, anyone. I made the trade as I made um, all trades. I asked a lot of questions to a lot of people and people I trusted. And the best philosophy I think a general manager can have is that when there's a good move, give credit to others. When there's a bad move, take responsibility. That way you're not casting any blame and you're keeping a path to continue to get information because you don't want to shut it off. 
if the person feels, gosh, I gave Fred bad information, now he's blasted me, and, and now I feel foolish. So um, I, I put it down as a, um, uh, for um, what it is. There were a lot of trades. They're all there to be judged, and they should all be judged. Yeah, and I, I'm sensing a, a big recurring theme here, being able to take responsibility for better or worse, and the clarity that that can bring to a situation. And I think there are some direct ties to um, what ended up being a pretty messy exit from the organization in 1998. You had held the role of GM for more than a decade, and that March of uh, 1998, Major League Baseball approved the sale of the Dodgers uh, from Peter O'Malley to Fox. And then in May of 98, the new ownership trades Dodger superstar Mike Piazza without your knowledge. And among many red flags, one of the key players getting back in return, Gary Sheffield, had a no trade clause. Any GM would have known that. And your initial instinct was to resign on the spot. Um, I believe your words were, you don't need a GM if trades are being made without his involvement. Um, and yet you you did stay on to help sort that out for a little while. Um, what were your thoughts as this was unfolding and how close were you to resigning on the spot when they informed you of the trade? Um, and then ultimately what led you to stay on for a little bit longer? Well, I, uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm not a quitter, but I was so upset having lived 30 years in the Dodger organization to see a trade made without the approval, without it being made by the general manager. I thought it was outrageous. Uh, I thought it was a terrible trade to begin with, but even more than being a terrible trade, you don't trade Mike Piazza, even more than being a terrible trade, um, that uh, uh, to the way that it came down when the Fox people were, who were really in the television business were trying to help uh, get the television rights for the Florida Marlins and the trade got mixed in with that because the Marlins were concerned about the financial obligation they had to a couple of players that uh, they sent along to the Dodgers. So um, I knew uh, this was the first glaring example, as glaring as it could be, that the Fox Dodgers are not the O'Malley Dodgers for sure. And, uh, but I didn't uh, quit because when they uh, called me after they called me to tell me about the trade. Then they called me and said uh, the trade couldn't be made because Sheffield had a, 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 a no trade contract. And as you alluded to, Matt, uh, certainly every general manager in the game knew that. I wasn't going to walk away in that big of a mess because this is a big mess. So if they made the trade and it actually had gone through, the Chapter may have been written differently, but I wasn't going to walk out uh, in that type of situation. And so I stayed. And uh, when I worked out the contract, we worked out the contract to sign Sheffield and the trade went through. And I went to the press. I told them exactly what had happened. And Fox was, uh, to say the least, upset with me because they had told the major league owners that there would be a wall between the television's uh, deal, deals and baseball. 
Well, that wall came tumbling down in the early innings of their ownership. And uh, I told Fox that uh, because they basically wanted me to say that I had made the trade. And I said, you got the wrong guy. It's not that I haven't made a bad trade. See Pedro Martinez, and you can check that out. But if you think I'm going to go before the public and the media and lie, that's not going to happen. And um, so that was um, uh, ultimately, they were very upset with me. And I'm told by a number of people, in fact, one of the writers came to me and said, Fred, when I told the truth about how the trade took place, he said, Fred, I'm close to Fox. They're going to fire you as soon as they can. And I said, that that may be. Uh, but I'm going to stay with the principles and the basics that I've tried to use in 30 years of working and serving the Dodgers, and I'm not going to change. Yeah, and uh, that that contact who gave you that information was um, onto something. Skip ahead a little bit to Father's Day, June 21st, 1998. Your daughter's birthday, the day your predecessor, Al Campanis, passed away. And that night, you returned from a, a road trip and were fired in Peter O'Malley's old office. So uh, a lot going on there. And I'm just wondering to, if we can pause for a moment and have you elaborate on the significance of that fateful day, June 21st, 1998, how that resonates in your mind. Well, it resonates strongly. Um, uh, first of all, uh, from a personal standpoint, uh, my daughter Jennifer's birthday, uh, which is a very important day. Uh, for me, for all of us in the family, uh, and the passing of Al Campanis, which was a very sad day. So um, it was um, uh, it was uh, certainly um, memorable in its own way uh, because now um, it was the um, the end of my career. Uh, with the Dodgers. And uh, my reaction, basically, I called Cheryl. Uh, uh, a driver had picked me or dropped me off at Dodger Stadium after our last our game in Colorado. And uh, Cheryl had gone home. And uh, I called Cheryl to say, um, uh, pick me up. I uh, have just been let go by the Dodgers. And um, we knew um, that our lights had changed. But as I think back, and I think even at the time, I knew one thing. I, I'd had to release a number of players, so it wasn't as if woe is me. This is part of business. I understand that. But I think the most important part in that is that I had no regrets because I knew that I had given that the very best that I had to give and every day I was with the Dodgers. I knew that in my mind and my heart and my soul. And so um, I, um, I was ready to um, put that chapter to rest, hoping that maybe there might be another position in baseball. Um, but knowing there are only 30 of these jobs. 
and to move on to other things, uh, which I did, uh, including teaching um, where we met uh, at USC. And they have a uh, wonderful opportunities at USC, Long Beach State, ultimately Caltech, to being involved in uh, working for um, Major League Baseball um, as a um, columnist, actually doing a few um, um, games um, for ESPN Radio. Uh, so it, it was, um, you, can't, you can't hold on. You cannot hold on to things that no longer belong to you. And some of those things are out of your control and you have to let go. Don't try to hold on, let go. And that's what I did. Wow. Yeah, I think there's a lot there. Um, and as much as you did move on to other things that, you know, I'm one of many people who has benefited remarkably from what came next in your life. Um, and this isn't necessarily a case of not letting go, but in 2011, you were part of a group bid vying to buy the Dodgers when they were up for sale, ultimately lost out to a group led by Magic Johnson. But in extra innings, um, it, it comes through that there was still a relationship that you rekindled as part of this process. So I'm curious if you could explain a little bit as to what your role was with the group in the ownership bid and then what you take away from the experience? Well, the, um, when uh, I heard that um, Frank McCourt was being, going to sell the Dodgers, I got a message on LinkedIn from um, a name from the past, Ben Wang, who of all things had been the Dodger bat boy, uh, probably the uh, smartest bat boy in the history of the game. There's some smart bat boys. But Ben had gone on to a, um, a great uh, education, uh, graduating from um, John Hopkins uh, with a doctorate in biology, uh, uh, working internationally, uh, and gaining um, a lot of experience. And uh, he wanted to put together a group to buy the Dodgers and reached out to me and asked if I would be a part of it. And uh, he, uh, he said, Fred, everything that has happened to me in my career, I can put back and pin back to my days with you and the Dodgers. So I said, you better come to my office in Pasadena because that's a pretty good come online and I'm not sure I believe all that with all the success that you've had. Um, but we, um, we formed a, uh, a great group. I told Ben when he met with me and I could see how capable he was and how sincere he was that we needed to add to our team. He was really serious about making this run and um, we added um, Andy Dolich, tremendous career in sports uh, front officers, and uh, Dick Freeman, former uh, president of the Progress and the Pirates. And um, we, um, we formed a very good team and, and made a, a, 
a very good run, and um, Magic and company um, uh, certainly uh, deserved to win the bid the way they approached it and what they paid. But it was a good, it was a, um, a wonderful experience, a wonderful learning experience. Yeah, and there's another experience that came uh, about six years later. You were welcomed back to Dodger Stadium to throw out the first pitch in June of 2017. And you were really surprised by a video tribute shown on the big screen at the time. And I'm wondering what it was like to be shown that kind of appreciation after all those years, three decades with the organization, then uh, a really rough break, and then coming back in that way what did that mean to you, and what was that moment like? Well, it uh, it really meant the world, uh, as I think I, I could say otherwise. But I think a picture taken that day, <laughs> as I looked at the board and they gave this tribute, um, would um, would would speak for itself. Um, it meant a lot because um, my uh, wife Cheryl was there. Uh, my daughters Jennifer and Kimberly were there. Uh, my granddaughter Tyler was there. So many friends were there. So it was um, it, it was it was very nice to um, uh, to have that night, um, and I was felt uh, I appreciated the uh, the Dodgers um, reaching out. It's kind of interesting because the Dodgers responded to a column that. Uh, Bill Platchy of the LA Times wrote, um, I think the heading was um, something along the lines of almost forgotten. <laughs> it struck me as strange because I thought, oh, my gosh, I have, I have so many friendships and so many wonderful uh, relationships. I, I never considered myself almost forgotten. I was, um, I was known by the people that meant the most to me. Um, and I, I didn't need a... a a bigger audience than that, uh, but it was a nice um, tribute, and um, I, I'm glad that uh, I, I feel very blessed, and uh, I know how meaningful those things can be. Yeah, and maybe one of the biggest moments of that evening was a reconciliation with Tommy Lasorda. I understand that the exit from the organization in 98 added some friction to that relationship, but to reconnect with him at that time, what was that moment like? It was wonderful. It was the uh, the highlight. The highlight really was that moment with uh, no one looking other than my two daughters. What had happened was that uh, we got to the stadium, uh, had a uh, box there for us, and I knew I would probably see Tommy. And we had certainly drifted apart uh, in um, recent years, and I didn't like that feeling at all. And uh, so uh, Jennifer and Kim and I went down to the switchboard to pick up tickets to get us on the field. We're walking back on the club level, and here comes Tommy in a kind of a little motorized chair because he had been in the hospital. And his wonderful attendant, Felipe, was with him. And I, I, sometimes I think about these things and I think, this just didn't happen by chance. I, I don't know how it happens, but you can't script some of, this, some of the things that happen in our lives. 
And so here comes Tommy. He'd been in the hospital. Uh, I had undergone surgery for cancer uh, and initially not a very good forecast. And so we came up to Tommy and uh, he was in this kind of wheelchair uh, motorized part where he was kind of moving around as so they'd stopped there. And I leaned over and put my arm around him and said, Tommy, I love you. And he said, Fred, I love you. So this was a, a relationship that began more than 50 years ago. Uh, and the relationship was so strong. Um, and then it shows that every close relationship like that, family or otherwise, it's never too late to uh, reconnect. It's never too late to tell somebody that you care for them or you love them, no matter whether there might have been a division. Because it's never been more true. If we don't do those things and the opportunity presents itself, we may never have the opportunity to do those things. So Tommy and I, from that time, <laughs> have had the best of times. Uh, I call him, uh, we talk. He's been hospitalized recently, but the spirit is good. And uh, uh, I think the world of him. Uh, and uh, uh, at our last uh, celebrity golf tournament, uh, Tommy was there. And um, I wanted him there because I wanted to present to him uh, the Celebration Life Award. Because if there's a life that is deserving of being celebrated, uh, it's Tommy. He has done so much for so many. And so we have, um, we have, um, we are back to where we started in the spring of 1969 when uh, uh, we developed a friendship that led to um, me playing for a Spokane team and replacing Bobby Valentine with shortstop in one game. So that's a long journey from um, me playing shortstop for Tommy's Spokane team to uh, two rather old guys meeting on the club level and uh, giving a little hug. Uh, that's a long journey. Yeah, and I have to dig into something for a moment. What led to you playing shortstop and replacing Bobby Valentine? There's, There's got to be something good there. Oh, uh, I don't know where they had time for that one, Matt. May, maybe later it was a bit of a, a challenge where uh, uh, Tommy and I became very close friends in the spring of 69. I was with the Long Beach paper. And uh, I told him and probably uh, uh, painted a brighter brush of my uh, uh, career um, as a JV player at Torrance High School. And uh, so Tommy challenged me to play in the game for Spokane and he challenged the wrong guy because um, I got into uniform and replaced Bobby Valentine at, uh, at shortstop in the practice game against uh, Bakersfield at uh, Dodger Town. Wow. What a moment and what a way to bookend <laughs> a relationship over the course of so many years. That's awesome. Um, and I, I did want to touch briefly on your current relationship with the team as well. For more than three decades, you held the title of the GM of the last Dodgers team to win a World Series. A couple months ago, they ended the drought. And I know a lot of LA, you know, had 
at least a brief moment of celebration in 2020 on the heels of the Lakers title. It was a big bright spot for sports fans in the LA area this year. Um, how did you react to the moment and how would you describe your current relationship with the team? Uh, I would say it's uh, my relationship with the team is very good. Uh, my relationship with Dave Roberts is extremely good. I have great, great respect for Dave um, because he's uh, one that I'm in more uh, contact with um, than the front office itself. But I uh, uh, was uh, happy and pleased to be able to um, congratulate both Dave and Andrew Freeman and his team. Uh, so um, I, at the end of the 2019 season, I texted Dave and I said, Dave, um, it had been a, a tough season for the Dodgers. And I said, as I recall that Dave, your team, I think, set a record for wins. Uh, you reached postseason play again, and he was taking all sorts of flack in the press. I said, with all your success, I have never once heard you take credit. I have always heard you take responsibility. I said, one of the happiest days of my life will be when you, Dave Roberts, are holding a World Series championship trophy on behalf of the Dodgers. That was 2019. One year later, my hopes came true. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a big moment. And I know there were a lot of big moments over, again, the course of decades working for the organization, um, you know, a lot that's transpired since then. So you overcame a lot of demands um, throughout your lifetime with the Dodgers organization, but moving on to a far greater challenge than anything with the Dodgers, um, defeating cancer. I would love to have you walk us through the process from a biopsy in January 2015 to a squamous cell carcinoma diagnosis a year and a half later at age 80, everything from radiation to chemotherapy to a life-saving new treatment, immunotherapy. Um, there's, I'm sure there's more beyond that that you can elaborate on. It's it's hard to believe the journey. If it wasn't chronicled in extra innings, I don't know how many people would be able to believe it. So how has this all been for you? Well, it's been a, um, a remarkable journey. I have been so blessed with my health. I've always tried to take great care of myself. And, uh, but in, um, uh, and uh, having spent a lot of time in the sun, being fair skinned, uh, 2015, um, I had a little spot on my lip and my dermatologist informed me that uh, after she took a biopsy, it was a little concerned. It was hardly noticeable, barely noticeable, uh, that this would have to be addressed by a Mohs procedure. Sent me to a doctor who did the Mohs procedure, a very well-known man, very well-known doctor. And it seemed to be no problems, clear. Even the doctor uh, said this is extremely minor, minor. And uh, 2016, I started to develop that great pain in my face. And as it turned out, they hadn't captured the cancer. It had moved from my lip up my jawbone. And uh, so uh, 2016, um, it was diagnosed as a uh, cancer, screen cell carcinoma in my jawbone. And uh, 
it was uh, serious, extremely serious, and had to be um, acted on immediately. And um, so they uh, said to me that they, uh, one uh, way to approach this would be to take the fibula bone from my left leg and replace my jawbone, a major, major operation. And I said, you know, strange things we say in life at different stages. I said, I'm 80 years old. I've been blessed with great health. I'm really more interested in quality of life than length of life. Who, who says that? I mean, I never even thought about it. I never even had to face anything like this. But I just knew how blessed I had been. And uh, so they did an operation where they cut my throat, took the cancer out of my jawbone and uh, 2016. And uh, made um, in uh, uh, the fall of 2016, things looked like they were going well. And then in the beginning of 2017, the cancer came back in my neck. Now they couldn't operate again. I had undergone the operation um, 33 radiations to my face, seven chemos. Now the cancer comes back and they can't operate again. And now I'm kind of thinking um, I probably should have had that major operation was this right back in my neck. And the only chance that I had was to be placed on a clinical trial uh, with immunotherapy. And immunotherapy really has saved my life. Um, and then as the journey continued, and as fate would have it, uh, when we got to uh, just a year ago or so, uh, July of 2019, my jawbone was destroyed by all of the radiation and all of the treatment. And so now I had no choice. Now three doctors, City Hope, wonderful people, were going to perform an operation to take the fibula bone from my left leg and put it in my jawbone. And so that's what took place. And I've been very fortunate uh, in my uh, recovery uh, with the great help of City of Hope to um, be here uh, today and um, be active on a number of fronts, trying to do all that I can do to help City of Hope, doing all that I can do to help young people that I stay in touch with and being part excuse me, of a podcast like in the front office that helps young people with an interest in careers in sports. Uh, so um, it's been, um, and the result of that um, uh, was, well, uh, two uh, parts of all of that were that I wanted to raise money for City of Hope. We had two golf tournaments, celebrity golf tournaments with great support where we raised a half million dollars. And just last July, a book come out, came out with all funds to City of Hope, all net proceeds, uh, titled Fred Clare's Journey to City of Hope and Finding a World Championship Team. And so I've been very pleased. Uh, one can see the reviews on Amazon. And the most important part of the reviews matter were these. If you read the reviews, it shows we accomplished what we wanted to accomplish in this. They talk about what a great place City Hope must be and what a great caregiver my wife, Cheryl, must be. So every patient needs a great hospital and every patient, if they're very, very fortunate, 
uh, is blessed by a great caregiver. So um, I just feel very fortunate. The uh, connection with City Hope uh, has been uh, the most meaningful connection of my life uh, because I uh, have made so many wonderful friendships, contacts, and to be able to um, help uh, others, hopefully, um, by telling the story of the city of hope. Yeah, there's so much in there, and I'm going to try to balance being respectful of your time and also doing the story the justice you know that it deserves. Um, so before we circle back on a couple things, I, I can't help but think that so many moments along the way force you to for confront fear and anxiety. Um, in extra innings, they detail that going into one surgery, you were told you might never be able to feel your tongue again afterward. Obviously, the fibula into the jawbone is a major operation. How did you approach those really tough moments, not just physically challenging, but very mentally demanding as well? I, uh, I approached them with the thought that, uh, wow, I've got a great team here. These guys are good. <laughs> These guys are really good. I've seen them. I, I know what they're all about. I know how they approach patients. I know what they've done. I've got a huge confidence in my new team here. And um, I approach the rest of it, I guess, in retrospect, uh, much as I approached my um, challenges with the Dodgers, uh, I knew that I would do uh, what I could in terms of the recovery. And I knew that um, um, no matter what came, um, I would deal with it, uh, whatever it was, uh, to the best of my ability. So I didn't, um, I didn't have any fear. Uh, I don't think fear is is helpful. Evaluation is helpful. Fear, I don't think, is a good thing. So I um, uh, followed, uh, with the help of my wife, Cheryl, everything that the City of Hope told me that I should do in recovery. Um, and if they, um, uh, after the surgery, it told me to walk around the loop once. I went around the loop three or five or 10 times. Uh, so I wasn't going to, um, uh, cheat myself out of, a, uh, out of the best recovery possible. But all that being said, it has more to do uh, with the expertise of the City of Hope than it has to do with my own desire to uh, continue the journey. Yeah, and there, there were so many false starts along the way when it comes to continuing this journey. There are several examples, you touched on them earlier about overcoming some obstacles, getting to a point where everything seems to finally be in the clear, only to have another bomb dropped on you. I think about Sisyphus rolling that rock uh, only for it to come back down every time. How did you and your wife Cheryl handle all the twists and turns that came your way during this journey? I, I think that you, uh... 
there is a, uh, a certainly a, uh, a part of uh, faith, uh, whatever uh, our individual faith and belief might be. Um, there are uh, many things in life that we deal with that are certainly clearly out of our hands. Uh, and, um, and, and I don't really, I don't really see um, my own journey as something that's extreme, if you will. Uh, it's been chronicled in a book, but I know firsthand the battle of others. I know firsthand uh, the battles that uh, of individuals who fought as gallantly as you can, who didn't survive. My friend Kevin Towers is an example of that. I wish Kevin was here to tell his story, but he isn't here. So I think it's a matter of um, doing everything that one can in a recovery, fighting as hard as you possibly can, never giving up, but ultimately uh, accepting your fate. Uh, you know, it's strange. I, the other day I came across something that um, I've never been a close follower of the great coach, Jimmy Valvano. But I, for some reason, I was thinking of something and I look back on his life and his career and the speech he gave um, at the, um, I guess it was the SB or the ESPN Awards. And uh, he said that um, no matter what happens, and, and, and he was facing uh, certain death. It was very powerful. Uh, he said, they can't take my heart and they can't take my mind and they can't take my soul. So here I am able to tell a story at the age of 85. Uh, the great coach, I believe, died at 47. So um, I think that uh, th those are uh, that those people. How do you how do you get by? Uh, what helps me is the inspiration I gain from others. So if I, in some very small way, literally, and I mean that, can serve as a inspiration to someone else where so many, uh, like the coach, like my friend Kevin, have served as inspirations for me. Uh, I feel a sense of, um, of um, I feel a sense of being in good company and I feel a sense of obligation. Yeah, and you've mentioned one of the obligations trying to bring as much awareness to City of Hope as possible. Um, that's City of Hope National Medical Center in the LA suburb of Duarte. They were a true lifeline for you. 
not just providing healthcare, but genuine care in every sense of the word. And I'm curious as to how you found them. There are many more famous hospitals and medical centers, but how did you find them and what role have they played in getting you from where you were five years ago to where things are today? Well, they, they have been the guiding light, the guiding hand. Uh, the, uh, my only involvement with City of Hope is when my dear secretary, Rosie Gutierrez, was hit by cancer. Cheryl and I visited City of Hope to see Rosie. And uh, that was the only time I was ever there. So I, I knew nothing other than this was where Rosie had been. And, and hearing about City of Hope. Uh, but nothing in any depth. But uh, when I, when this I was struck by this cancer, then the um, uh, the doctor who had performed the most procedure uh, made the recommendation that it should be uh, that my uh, best place would be uh, City Hope. So that's how I discovered City Hope, and. Um, going there for the first time uh, in um, 2016 and uh, meeting the doctors and so many visits through all that we've been through. It's, uh, it's like a, um, uh, really almost like a second home for a period of time. And when I walk in there now, I was there this week, earlier this week for occupational therapy on my neck. And to see the challenges of the patients during the time of COVID. When I, when I was at, see, you have to feel, you have to recognize where, where you're fortunate. Okay, I undergo cancer treatment. I, I didn't do it during a, a, a COVID uh, pandemic. My, my wife could be there. My kids could be there. Friends could be there. I had support. I walk in City Hope now. You talk about a challenging situation. It, it is a huge challenge. So I don't feel sorry in any way for myself. All, the, all that I want to do is to say, how can I help? Because I can see it, I can feel it, and I know it. And I want to do what I can to help other people. Yeah, and I think the new book, Extra Innings, is doing a lot of that. And if you're a sports fan or a fan of seeing the best in humanity in general, it's a must either way. For sports fans, there's a who's who of luminaries featured in this book, including a lot of great Dodgers, Vince Goley, Tommy Lasorda, Peter O'Malley, 2020 World Series winning manager Dave Roberts, Players, Kirk Gibson, Steve Garvey, Oral Hershiser, Mike Sosha, even some non-Dodgers, Bob Costas, Pete Rose. It's crazy. Um, and beyond sports, I think there's a lot of hope for cancer patients everywhere to be gleaned from this book. Something that stuck with me right off the bat was the foreword written by LA Times columnist Bill Plaschke. You referenced him earlier. And he described a heated argument you had with Kirk Gibson. And one of the points he made was not to mistake Fred Clare's kindness for weakness he won't be intimidated. And I think just the way you communicated the last point you were making about City of Hope and the challenges people are facing right now and how you're trying to help, um, I think it gets at that. A lot of fighting spirit, um, still trying to be a very kind person. How do you approach those two? They seem to be almost opposing characteristics, but um, clearly you've got them in spades. And I'm, I'm wondering how you reconcile kindness 
and the fighting spirit at the same time? I, I don't try to. Uh, I, I just, um, I, I respond. Uh, Bill Klatsky was um, very kind in his introduction. Um, I think that um, uh, kindness uh, should never be interpreted as a uh, lack of uh, competitiveness. Uh, I think that uh, kindness um, may be uh, one of the great traits that any of us could have. It's not for us to judge whether we have it or whether we don't have it. Uh, it's usually on display to be judged by others. But I, I see, I, I think of uh, great competitors, great people that I have known. And uh, they exemplify, the great people I've known, exemplify uh, kindness and spirit and competitiveness. And no one uh, did that more, has done that more than the ultimate competitor and the greatest dodger of them all, Jackie Robinson. And the quote that's in the book and that lives with me because it was Jackie's life's work is a life is not important except on the impact it has on other lives. And Jackie lived that life uh, in caring for others. That's kindness. When you care for others, when you care, in fact, more for others uh, than you do for yourself, that's, that's not me, that's Jackie. That's the life he lived. And it was my great honor to be with him in his last public appearance in 1972, when he threw out the first pitch at the World Series in Cincinnati and was to sadly pass away nine days later. So you talk about a competitive spirit. <laughs> no one had it more than Jackie, <laughs> no one. But you talk about kindness and caring for others. Uh, that was Jackie. Uh, so I, um, I just, um, again, I, I try to look to those where I've been so blessed to People have been so blessed to know and to um, uh, realize and be so appreciative of um, how those examples uh, have been set for me and for all of us. Yeah, well, you, you took one of my questions. We'll get shortly to just a quick rapid fire to close things out. It was, I was going to ask you greatest Dodger of all time in your book, but we now know that answer. And I, I think it's a tough one to argue with. Um, before we get to a few rapid fire questions, one more thing to touch on related to extra innings, juxtaposing the city of hope alongside the Dodgers as a championship caliber team, if you will. And I'd like to throw out one more nomination for a championship caliber team, knowing what I do now. 
and that would be Fred and Cheryl Claire. Um, your wife, Cheryl, seems like such a hero in so many regards. And I know just trying to juggle my day job and this podcast feels daunting. And I can't fathom trying to do that with my wife's thoughtfulness and support. So, um, I mean, Cheryl stepped up in such a major way, um, so many major ways. I was wondering if you could describe Cheryl, your relationship and her role in who you are and, um, you know, maybe her role behind the scenes in so many wonderful things that you've accomplished. Well, um, Cheryl has um, has been and has meant uh, everything uh, in her support. Uh, there was never a time that I walked into City of Hope uh, without Cheryl uh, by my side. And I think it's so important um, to pay tribute to the uh, to the caregivers uh, uh, for all that they do and all that they go through. So Cheryl is um, is the rock, um, and uh, has always um, been there. And um, uh, uh, there aren't really words to um, to describe it. Um, I don't share it often, but when I um, inscribed um, a book on my doctor career. Uh, my 30 years in Dodger Blue to Cheryl, it was, it says it better than anything uh, that I can say or think of. You are the wind beneath my wings. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I think this is a good point to move on to a, a couple quick questions just to let the listeners get to know you a little bit better. You've clearly accomplished so much, overcome so much, and, and still have so much to offer people out there. Um, so to get to know Fred Clare a little bit better, beyond the Dodgers and um, everything chronicled in Extra Innings, um, I guess it kind of tying in with Extra Innings as a theme, what would you say is your favorite book? Um, good to Great. Jim Collins, Good to Great. Uh, everyone should read it. It really, uh, the only sports person mentioned, and I've mentioned him before, the only sports person in there is Coach Wooden. But if you want to know how to run a business, uh, read Jim Collins, could be great. Got it. All right, adding that to my list as we speak. Um, and then if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would that be? Um, it would be Jackie. It would be Jackie. Yeah, I think you've touched on so many reasons why. That's a very strong answer. Um, and then one last rapid fire question for you. If you had one piece of advice to leave for future generations, I know you, you do so much to help young people find their way in life. There's a lot that you've done for me. Um, what would that advice be um, looking forward beyond 2020? Um, well, I'm, I'm referencing people I've referenced, but they're very much on my mind. Um, my advice to any young person uh, would be in the words, again, of Coach Wooden, make each day your masterpiece. You don't have days to waste. Make each day your masterpiece. Yeah. All right. Well said. And I, I love that note because 
a big part of the inspiration behind Props and Hops uh, is the relationship I was fortunate to build with David Molinsky, famous in betting and other circles in life. Um, and he, again, tragically passed away too soon in 2018. Um, I end each episode with a quote that either comes from him or inspires his legacy and keeping it alive. I think very few people can match his wisdom, his strength, and his character. It's, it's just about unparalleled. And Fred, I want to thank you because you're in that pantheon. Thank you. And I can vividly remember sitting across from you at a table at Pie and Burger in Pasadena about 11 years ago. And one of the piece of, pieces of advice that you left for me that has really stuck with me over time was to embrace discomfort. So those are some words that we can use as, as the quote to tie a bow around this episode, because um, certainly you've overcome so much discomfort. And in my own little world at the time, there was a lot of discomfort trying to find my footing in, in my career coming out of the Great Recession. And there's been a lot of discomfort throughout 2020 on so many levels in a pandemic and uh, turbulent year in general. I often reflect on your advice. It's been so liberating and so empowering. Um, so Fred, I, I just want to acknowledge your honesty, your kindness, your strength um, in every sense of the word. And that Jackie Robinson quote, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. Um, you've had a profound impact on my life, the lives of others in my family, and then so many others in Southern California and beyond. And that speaks volumes to the importance of your life. So thank you so much for all that you do and continue to do. Thank you very much, Matt. It's been great to be with you. Take good care and we will stay in touch. All right. That sounds like a plan. Okay. Thanks, Fred. Goodbye. All right. Thanks again to Fred. What an icon and a true treasure. To learn more about his incredible story, again, I'd like to encourage you to pick up a copy of Extra Innings. And you won't just be enlightening yourself. You could also quite possibly be helping to save someone else's life as all funds from book sales go to City of Hope. I'll drop a link to the book's page on Amazon in the show notes for easy reference. I know reading is a common New Year's resolution, and there are few places better to start than Extra Innings. Now, speaking of New Year's resolutions, I'm also resolving to continue progressing with betting and beer in 2021, so I'll be back at it Friday for the wildcard weekend breakdown. Talk to you then. Until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. Mm -hmm.